<clears throat> By the way, I'm not bragging, but I did shake his hand in Spanish. Um, so <laughs> you know, we live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a broken world. And when we went to Cuba, as you've already heard, it was very obvious that as a broken system and broken communities filled with broken people. You know, we jumped on a plane and we came back and it was very quick. You know, the flight was about an hour in the air. We landed in Tampa and then a, a, a shuttle ride back to Savannah. And it didn't take long for us to be reminded that we live in a broken country ourselves. We're surrounded by broken communities and those are inhabited by broken people. You know, we live in a fallen world. The tension really for us as Christians is how do we reach that fallen world when in so many ways we ourselves are reminded of our own brokenness? Because none of us have arrived, none of us are perfect, none of us have all the answers, and yet God has sent us as Christians into a broken down world to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. For many Christians, you know, our, our perspective for years has been, you know, that here we are in the midst of, a, of an election year. You know, maybe if we just elect the right person, then that's going to fix everything, at least in our own country, and then everything will be better off from there. But we understand that God doesn't necessarily operate that way. Yes, it is important as to who we vote for. We don't have a whole lot of good options, by the way, if you haven't been watching the news lately, just to kind of burst your bubble. However, God doesn't ride in on Air Force One in any particular context. And so it's not as though whoever we elect is just suddenly going to fix everything. We have deep spiritual issues in our country, and each and every one of us as well have deep spiritual issues that only God himself can meet. So where is the tension there? I mean, how, how do we resolve that tension of how we use our lives to make a difference in the midst of a world that is so incredibly broken down? Well, that's something the scriptures speak of. And in the book of John chapter 1, I want us to address that a little bit and see what it is that scripture tells us as to how to make a difference in the midst of a broken world in a way that will last for all of eternity. And so John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. Now let me just say this. When you think about Christmas, the Christmas story, most of us will tend to think about the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. Some of you probably sit down with your kids, right, or your grandkids, and you've got a, you know, you've got a Christmas tradition where you read the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2, first 20 verses, and that is great. That is a really good thing. But a lot of us forget the fact that the whole Christmas story, you know, all of it true, is, off, is also dealt with outside of Matthew and outside of Luke. In fact, I'd be willing to say that one of those beautiful pictures of the whole entire Christmas story we read of right here in the first 18 verses of the book of John, right there in the first chapter. But you don't read any of the physical uh, uh, explanations of what Christmas is. There, there's no mention in John 1 of a manger. There's no mention in John 1 of a star or of the wise men, you know, or of a decree that went out by Caesar Augustus. There's no mention in John 1 of this, but rather what John 1 does is that this first chapter helps us to see more of a theological perspective on why Jesus chose to come. And what John does here in this first chapter is he lays out a lot of deep truth that he's going to unpack later in the book, all, you know, the rest of the 21 chapters that are there. He's going to unpack it and help us to see, number one, why Jesus came, and then number two, what the implications are for every single one of us as followers of Christ. And so let's just jump in. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through the first 14 verses of this particular chapter. I'll make comment as we go, and then I'll try my best to tie it up together at the end with what this means for us as followers of Jesus. So John chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can read along with me. Uh, if not, we would love for you to pick up a free one right out in the lobby. We've got those for you if you don't have a copy of Scripture. Uh, but you can also read on the overhead with me as well. So John 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning 
with God. Now, let's just assume for a second that you have never read the Bible, right? This is your first, you know, you, th- this was your first 10 seconds of ever reading anything in the Bible. Your first question is going to be, when you read this passage, who on earth is the Word? Who is it talking about? Because I don't usually use in my own, you know, personal language, I don't use the Word to describe somebody, you know? So, so who is this referring to? Well, we won't bring the slide up right now, but if in your copy of Scripture, if you look down to verse 14, it tells us who the Word is, that He was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so at the very very beginning, what we see here is that at the, at the very first of John 1, the, the gospel is helping us to understand who Jesus is because the word is a reference to Jesus himself. And what it teaches us from the very beginning is a simple truth that Jesus himself is God. It says, in the beginning was the word, was Jesus, and the word, Jesus was with God, and the word was God. If you, if, if you could study the, the Greek construction there, of that particular phrase, when it says that the word was God, it means that the word, Jesus, had all of the attributes of deity, had all of the same attributes of God himself. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, you remember this phrase, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. Starts much the same way as John's gospel. In the beginning. When you read of God and his creative work in the book of Genesis, what we find is, is that God is listed there as plural. In the beginning, God, it's a Hebrew word, Elohim, which is in the plural form, meaning that there is one God who has revealed himself in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what we see here in John is that John is dealing with this aspect of the Trinity where Jesus is being now explained as being no less than God himself. So in the beginning was the Word, was Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, carrying all the same attributes of deity. This is who Jesus was. He was in the beginning with God. So this is a very, very important understanding. Jesus is God, all right? So let's move on to verse 3 through verse 5. Paul, or rather, John now begins to uh, detail the creative work of Jesus at the, at, the, uh, at the point of creation. It says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians would kind of expand this in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, where Paul would say that it was through Jesus that all things have been created. All right? So he goes on, uh, verse 4, he says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So John is now laying out a contrast for us. So follow me on this. You've got Jesus, who is now, we understand, who is God. He, as the light of the world, has come into the darkness. He has come into a fallen world, a world that wasn't ready to embrace him, hug him, welcome him. Rather, a world that would in many ways reject him. And yet it was into that fallen world filled with darkness with all of its issues and all of its problems and all of its pains that Jesus would choose as an act of his own will to come and to insert himself. The light of the world in the midst of immense darkness. And John says there at the end of verse 5 that it was the darkness, it was this world, it was the, the system that operates by pushing God to the curb that did not comprehend who Jesus was. Verse 6 John shifts gears here, and he now introduces us to another person in the story, this being John the Baptist. He says, there was a man, or there came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light, about Christ, so that, here's the reason, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. In other words, John the Baptist was not someone who had all the answers. He wasn't the fix. He wasn't perfect, 
right? He was not the light, but rather he came to testify specifically about the light. Now, now you may be wondering exactly what was John the Baptist like, you know? If he's going to be the first witness that we read of necessarily in the Gospels, I mean, this must have been a pretty special guy, right? He must have had like a little halo over his head and everywhere he went. You know, people's first question was, man, what's up with the halo? You know, that's probably the way he looked, you're thinking. But he was not. He was just like everybody else. In fact, look at this description of him in the book of Matthew chapter 3. Look at how Matthew chooses to describe him, John the Baptist. He says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then Matthew describes John the Baptist. He says, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, if you invited him over for dinner today, all right, and he came showing up, one, he's probably not going to like whatever it is you're going to serve, unless you're serving locusts and wild honey, which I don't want to come over to your house for dinner for that matter, if that's what you got. So you're probably not going to like whatever it is you're serving. And he's probably not going to be dressed like you, okay? So he's going to be different. He's going to look different. He's going to act different. Verse 5, it says, Jerusalem was going out to him, all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Here's the thing about John the Baptist. It's interesting that John here in the gospel sort of shifts gears and pulls him into the story. Because what he shows here is that John the Baptist was nothing special. He was an ordinary man who needed a savior himself, and yet God uses him in his willingness to spread the message of the gospel. All right, so let's shift gears. Let's move up now to verse 9 and pick up what John says next. It says, there was the true light, a reference to Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. That construct there again, when John mentions the true light, true means that he was authentic. He was not a copy. That when Jesus walked this earth, it's not as though there was God and then, well, just sort of like a little copy version of him. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that when Jesus walked this earth, and John alludes to this, that this was the one true light. This is the one true God who walked this earth, bringing the light of the gospel, the light of himself to a darkened world. John makes it very clear that as he came into the world, he came to bring light to the lives of those who were lost in sin. Verse 10, perhaps one of the saddest verses that we read of in all of Scripture. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So here is what is at play. You've got a fallen world in darkness that is broken at every single level, You've got a Savior named Jesus, God himself, who has chose to come. He didn't send a copy. He didn't send another version of himself. He came, God the Son, right? God came and showed up in the midst of the brokenness. He lived out his life in perfection for 33 years. And as he lived out his life in sinless perfection, he showed himself to be the light, the answer, the fix that every single person would need. And yet, as he lived out his life in sinless uh, sinless perfection, John tells us in verse 10 that it was that very world that, 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 uh, that Jesus walked in that did not know him, did not embrace him, did not receive him, did not accept him, and did not follow him. Verse 11. He came to his own, a reference to the Jews, and those who were owned, did, his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name I shared a little equation a math equation 
a few weeks ago, right out of this particular verse. It's a great, great way to share the gospel, by the way. It simply says that believe plus receive equals become. The simple message of the gospel is that to those, this verse tells us, to those who believed in Jesus up here, believe that he's God, believe that he came, that he died, that he rose again. To those who believe that, but then also add to that belief a willingness to receive him. Those who accept him and invite him as Savior and as Lord of their lives, to follow him as the Savior of the world, to follow him as their personal, uh, personal Lord. Those who believe and receive, then in God's economy, become. We are changed. We are transformed. We are inherited into the very family of God himself. You know, when you look at this passage, these first 12 verses at least of the book of John, we find that John lays out the very simple message of the gospel. Broken world, sinless Savior, who came, some who would reject, some who would receive. For those who would receive, verse 13... Next verse, verse 13, it says, who, Those would be the ones that were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That when we give our lives to Christ, what happens ultimately is that God works something in us to where it's as though we are born all over again. We have a brand new start in our lives. We are not the same as we used to be. And we're not talking about those who get some sort of religion, right? That's not what Scripture speaks of at all. But those who have a genuine relationship with Christ, there is a transaction that takes place where we're moved out of darkness into light, out of sinfulness into forgiven. We are, we are transformed by our very nature to the degree to where Scripture can only speak of it as being born all over again, this time on the inside. It is a new birth. It is a brand new start. We become a part of the family of God, which then brings us to verse 14, the last verse I want us to focus on in this passage this morning. And it says, going back to the very beginning again, and the word Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Whenever John sat down to write this particular gospel, he was able to write it specifically out of his own experience. He was there to be able to testify to what he had experienced in the presence of Jesus. John was able to say, you know what, I was there, Luke chapter 9. You know, Luke's going to tell the story, but I was there because I saw Jesus when he was transfigured before my very sight. And the, it's as though the curtain was peeled back and he was shown to be God himself in, in, in flesh and blood. I was there to see that. John would have countless examples of things that he had witnessed. He was able to say here that I saw him. We saw his glory. Glory as, as, as though he is the only begotten from the Father, which is who he was, full of grace and full of truth. Interesting that John would describe Jesus this way, full of grace and full of truth. Not grace or truth, but grace and truth. Sometimes we have a difficulty with that, don't we? Sometimes for us, we have to decide between the two. I'm going to show grace or I'm going to speak truth. Jesus somehow embodied both of those perfectly. If we're all about grace and no truth, what happens is, is that we give free license to everyone just to sin up however they want, right? It's all grace. God's going to forgive you. Just go out and do whatever you want. And there are religious systems in the first century that really followed that basic belief. You know, it's all grace, and we can do however we want and live however we want, and God's going to forgive us. And, and they were very sinful belief systems. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are those that just hold simply to truth with no grace. The Pharisees, for example, I mean, they had their own mixed-up version of truth, but to them, they had their little religious system, and they had their beliefs, and they had their rules and their laws, and there was very little room for grace there. When Jesus came, 
He embodied grace and truth. He could look in the eyes of the Pharisees and just absolutely blister them because they had no grace amongst themselves. And yet he could also stoop down beside a woman who had been caught in adultery and extend nothing but pure grace to her because he was the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. And when he walked this earth, that's exactly what people saw. Grace and truth. Why did they see that? Don't miss this. It's going to be so simple, you're going to be tempted to miss it. It's because of what verse 14 tells us. That the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the key. The Greek word for dwelt can be translated pitched his tent. It sort of goes back to the Old Testament times in the wilderness wanderings when God would dwell among his people through the tabernacle. Remember, they would construct the tabernacle. God's glory would come down, and that would be how God would reveal himself to his people in the Old Testament wilderness wanderings period. What John is saying here is that when Jesus walked this earth, he dwelt, he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us. In other words, God himself chose to clothe himself in the confines of humanity, still sinless, but within the confines of humanity, and he chose to come so that he could be a part of this fallen, darkened, sinful world and lead those who were willing to come on his terms to life. When we were in Cuba, we had a service. I think, I think it was Billy who alluded to it on a Wednesday night. It was our last service there. We'd already had a Sunday service. We had a Wednesday service. And uh, it was kind of the time for the church to say thanks to us. All of us on our team, all 10 of us, took a moment to express our gratitude to that church and thank them for how they had taken care of us and had just been a blessing to us. And, uh, and we had already had a week of ladies' Bible studies and home groups, uh, which they call cell churches there. I was able to go to one of those cell churches, and it was a real privilege because it's like the underground church in, in, in a way. I mean, the government knows they're meeting, but there are restrictions that are there. And by the way, the one that I was assigned to was all ladies, so it's my first ladies' Bible study I ever went to and I really enjoyed it I might who knows I might show up at the next one but um but it was kind of interesting so uh, so I was able to be a part of that so all virtually all the whole entire trip had, had been done and so there we are in this Wednesday night service and uh we're saying our gratitude we're saying our thanks and it's a regular service and everything and I look back in the back and there's a guy who was in the back and it just struck me and it kind of caught me a little bit as funny because I knew him uh from from that trip he had never been to that church before to my knowledge and he was sitting in the back of the of the uh, the little the, the little sanctuary where we were, and, uh, and he had on this shirt um, that had like a picture of the American flag and a woman in a bikini on it. And I thought, you know what? I've never seen one of those while I've been up there preaching on a Sunday back home. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've got one of those on, you know, who knows? I'm sure he'd love it. But, um, but it was just interesting, and I thought, you know what? He, the reason that he is here the reason that he chose to come to this church today, more than likely, as the, the, the tool that God used, is that there were a team of people who met him where he was and were in his world and who loved him. We could have stayed home and we could have somehow figured out a way to Skype in as though they have internet service there. We could have Skyped in a message of God's grace and Skyped in a message from God's word and Skyped in a ladies' Bible study and tried to accomplish everything that way from a distance. But the reason that man came to church, I am convinced, was because there were people that stepped into his world and sought to make a difference there for who he was, which is exactly what Jesus did 
and which is exactly what he calls you and me to do as well. You know the key to ministry? It's not great programs, and it's not a choir who just nails it every single Sunday, and it's not having a sharp staff, and it's not about having the best teachers, and it's not about all the bells and whistles and all the pro... That, that, that is not the key to solid ministry. You know what the key to a solid ministry is today in this world? It's the same key as it was 2,000 years ago. It's the same key as it was when Paul took three missionary journeys and scattered around all that part of the world planting churches everywhere he went. It's the same key. It's called incarnational ministry. It's called stepping into the lives of people for the sake of the message of the gospel with all of its risks and all of its dangers and all of its hurt and all of its pain and all of the frustrations that go with it. It's stepping into the lives of broken people to bring them the message of a Savior who heals, delivers, and sets free. That's the key. And no matter how strong a church's programs may be, and no matter how big and loud the bells and whistles may be, if a church is not willing to step into the lives of broken communities and broken cities and broken people with a message of the gospel, then that church is not fulfilling its ministry to any degree whatsoever. That's what Scripture would teach us. And so the way we evaluate our effectiveness as churches and the way we evaluate our effectiveness as a witness to the gospel of Christ is really on different terms than what we would think. It's evaluated by how much we're invested in the lives of those who don't know him and how willing we are to take a risk to go down into the trenches to meet him there. So when you see the example that Jesus set in John 1, that he came and his coming meant death. It meant being ostracized by the very group of people he came to bring the gospel to first, his own, the Jews. It meant him being betrayed by one of his closest companions, Judas. And I wonder, why did Jesus even allow Judas to be chosen as a disciple in the first place? And why did he let him linger for three years, three and a half years of public ministry to begin with? Because of grace. Why would he do that? Because he knows you can't reach people until you get involved in their lives. And by the way, lest we think it's about us, we also were those broken people that he reached as well. And we've still got our issues, let's be honest, that he's working on and molding and shaping if we let him day by day by day. So who's in your world that needs to hear the gospel? And how long will the strategy work if this is your strategy? that I wish my church would do something to reach them. Because hanging a sign outside that says, y'all come, isn't going to get it. They're only going to be reached when we do like Jesus and when we go. The simple takeaway is this, that reaching our world for Christ simply means, and it even requires, that we be in it without being of it. That we live our lives differently because we live according to a new Savior, and He's not us, it's Jesus. We live differently by a different standard. And yet we also step without pride but with all humility into a world filled with people whose lives are in desperate need of the same Savior that we follow. And we bring to them a life that looks different and a message that can set them free. But we've got to be willing to go. It's the message and the method that Jesus used. It's the message and the method that Paul used. It's the message and the method that the early church used. And it's the only thing that's going to reach this world today. It's not about a new president. It's about, not about a new government. It's not about having more money or better systems. It is about a Savior. And there's only one. And you know him. So what will you and I do 
to introduce him now to those who need to hear. Let's pray. God, it can be convicting at times for us as Christians to realize how easy it is for us to take a step away from the chaos and away from the hurt and away from the brokenness of our world. And we can be very good, Lord, at building our Christian bubbles around ourselves where the only places we really go are inhabited by other believers like us. And the only places we really support are places that are Christian in nature. And though there is very much benefit in being with others of like faith that give encouragement to our lives, we cannot afford to neglect the simple truth that we are people that are called and sent into a broken world with a message that has changed our lives. Lord, it's not about having more people this year than we did this time last year. Lord, it is all about accomplishing the work that you've laid before us as followers of Jesus. And we understand, hopefully, that our salvation was not given to us just simply for our own benefit. That you gave us salvation. You saved us for the purpose of also turning us into a light of the message of the gospel. And Lord, I think for every one of us who know you this morning, if we're honest, we can think of people in our world who need you the way that we do. And yet they've never met you. They've never heard this message. They've never been compelled to place their faith in Christ. And Lord, it doesn't mean that we have to become uh, Billy Graham or somebody that we're not. Lord, you just want to use our changed lives to put you on display. And so, Lord, for every Christian who's here this morning, I pray that we'd really take inventory to see how much involved are we in the world that surrounds us. Are we willing to go not just to Cuba, not just to the Philippines, not just to New Orleans, as teams will go later this year, but, Lord, are we willing to go across the back fence? Are we willing to cross the street? Are we willing to go to our campus, to the guy in the office down the hall from us? Are we willing to go to the people that we know and the relationships we have on the teams that our kids play on and in the places where we work out and all those places? Are we willing to go as changed people with a message of the gospel in humility and in love to introduce a darkened world to the beauty of you, our Savior, our light. So God, help us to be willing to even say perhaps now, Lord, I'll go. And God, for those this morning who are here that have never given their lives to you, whose world is dark and they need a Savior, I pray that this morning right where they sit, they'll make that one decision that can change everything. And that decision is to lay down their sin the best they can and to yield their lives to Jesus, that he would come and forgive and take over as they invite him to be their Savior and their Lord. And so God, bless these decisions, we pray now, in these next couple of moments, knowing that some significant choices could be made. May they be in direction or, or in obedience to your direction in our lives. And may you be the one that gets the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.